right. Hey, everybody. Um, Merry Christmas. Welcome to our guests. Welcome to everybody online. Hope you can join us in person during this Christmas season. We love to see you here. If you're online, if you ever go on Facebook, then you might have saw this week I did an unscientific survey asking what is the greatest Christmas movie of all time and people gave their answers and so I'm going to give you the top four answers that they gave and then we're just going to vote in here and decide once and for all greatest Christmas movie okay so here are the four uh, it's a wonderful life uh, a Christmas story a miracle on 34th street and white Christmas okay so now I'm going to have you raise your hands how many say the greatest is it's a wonderful life okay how about a Christmas story how about uh, White Christmas and Miracle on 34th? Okay, I think it came down to two, so I'm going to do one more time. You've got to choose either It's a Wonderful Life or a Christmas Story. How many say It's a Wonderful Life? How many say A Christmas Story? Ah, man. I thought there'd be a clear winner there, but that looks pretty close. But, you know... It, I'll just cast a tiebreaker. It's a Wonderful Life, folks. That's it. I mean, uh, those, those are actually the two movies I do watch every year. One to laugh and one, you know, a little, little tear at the end. Uh, but both awesome movies. So if you're online this week, go on Facebook. You're going to see another survey, and we'll vote next week on the greatest Christmas song of all time, okay? Uh, how do you determine what is the greatest of anything? How do you determine who the greatest person is? Is it the most famous the one who has changed history the most, the one who has uh, impacted world events the most, transformed our understanding of reality and the universe, uh, the ones who have uh, ruled nations, led armies, discovered scientific laws, invented very helpful things. Uh, how do you decide? People who created masterpieces of art and literature. Who has the most influence? Well, I think we would all agree here that indisputably there is one name that is above all others. Jesus is the greatest of all time. And, and many would agree with that around the world because all they would have to look at is the significance that he still has 2,000 years later. How he continues to shape world history through the church, through Christians, uh, transforming cultural values and worldviews. But you and I know that there's far more to Jesus' greatness than just those kinds of things. In fact, here's what Scripture says, Hebrews 13, 8. Everybody say it out loud together with me. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. History is His story. All you have to do is look at the calendar, look at the timeline. All of history is divided into two sections, right? Everything is either B.C., before Christ, or A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Everybody acknowledges that, even though you might know in recent times they've gotten away from using B.C. and A.D., and now uh, it's often B.C.E., before the Common Era, and C.E., the Common Era. Why do they do that? Well to mask the name of Christ, to um, make history more secular, to make non-Christians a little more comfortable. But it doesn't matter what you call it, it's still the same thing. It's all based on this split in history at Christmas. Everything is either before Christ or after Christ. He is the deciding factor of the timeline. In fact, if you go into the Bible, we're, we're gonna go back to the very beginning today, to everything that was B.C., 
everything that was before Christ, specifically the Old Testament section of the Bible, because just like history, the Bible is divided into two segments. There's the B.C. segment, which is everything before Christ, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and everything in the New Testament is about Christ. Everything is about in the year of our Lord. So you say, if he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then where is he in the ancient past? Why isn't he named in the Old Testament? Where is he in the Hebrew Scriptures? Well, what I want to do today is give you a good overview of how all the Old Testament Scriptures were preparing the world for the coming of Christ. Everything was leading up to Christ arriving. I want to help you understand who he is, what he came to do, that you would appreciate better life in the A.D. over the B.C., and that you can really celebrate the true meaning of Christmas so that you'll worship Jesus as the fulfillment of all God's promises. That's our big idea today. Now, he, he's not mentioned by name in the Old Testament until he's incarnated as a man in the New Testament. So where is he? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through some stories and symbols throughout the Old Testament that give you some fuzzy pictures of Jesus to help you get some glimpses of him while he's still concealed until he's fully revealed in the New Testament. Now, in the amount of time I have, I certainly cannot go through all of those things, but I'm going to take you through some of the more important ones. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, then you're going to get a bit of a whirlwind crash course in it today because you can't really appreciate the new until you understand better the old. And even if you do know the old, I think you're going to see some really cool things about Jesus in the old that maybe you've never seen before. And it begins with prophecies. Prophecies go all the way back to the beginning. In the book of Genesis, right after the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God makes a promise, a prophecy, that he is going to send the seed born of a woman whose heel will be bruised by the serpent, the devil, but who in turn will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. That is the very first prophecy of the saving death and resurrection of the Messiah, of Jesus. 700 years B.C., Isaiah prophesied that he would be born of a virgin. Micah prophesied he would be born in the city of Bethlehem. The Psalms and Zechariah and others prophesied that he would be a descendant of Abraham and of King David. Daniel, in the 6th century B.C., prophesied about the timeline from his time until the time the Messiah would be cut off in the future. He said it would be a period of 69 weeks of weeks. Well, a week is seven days. Seven times 69 weeks is 483 years, which, guess what, takes you right up to the year A.D. 30, the year that Jesus was cut off, that he was crucified. Amazing. Others prophesied that he would show up, the Messiah would come when the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. And, folks, that's significant because that means that no one could possibly fulfill the prophecies unless he were born in the first century A.D. or prior, because the temple still had to be there. And it's not there anymore. It was destroyed in A.D. 70, and it's never been rebuilt. All the genealogical records have been lost. All the royal lineage has been lost. There's no way anybody could fulfill the prophecies after the first century. Prophecy said he would be betrayed by a friend, that he would have his hands and his feet pierced. There's an amazing prophecy in an amazing chapter 
of Isaiah, chapter 53, that says, written 700 years B.C., that he was despised and rejected by men. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed, we're saved. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Cut off of the land of the living, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, what, light and life, again, resurrection, and be satisfied. Guys, all those things in that chapter were fulfilled in Jesus. Things that he couldn't have possibly planned, arranged, or rigged. Psalm 16 prophesies that God would not let his Holy One remain in the grave and his body decompose. A prophecy of resurrection. Lots of prophecies, but some would also say that we see Jesus, who before he was Jesus was the second person of the Trinity. He's called the Word. Before he became Jesus, you see him pop up in some very brief cameos throughout the Old Testament as a man. Theologically, we would call those theophanies, a visible manifestation of God in human form. Uh, now, the New Testament doesn't confirm that when God showed up as a man in the Old Testament, that it was Christ, that it was actually a Christophany. But there's good reason to believe that maybe it was. For example, when God appears as a man to Abraham, maybe that was a pre-incarnate Christ. Or when Jacob is wrestling a man all night long, and it turns out that man was God, could have been Christ. When God appears as a man to Moses and the elders of Israel. Could have been Christ. Or when the three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are thrown into the fiery furnace and King Nebuchadnezzar looks in and in Daniel 3 he says, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Could have been Christ. Even if these were not Christ, every theophany was a prefigurement, a foreshadowing of the incarnation of God taking on human form as the man Jesus, becoming Emmanuel, God with us. Now the Hebrew scriptures also give some glimpses that foreshadowed the coming of the Messiah in ways that we can only truly appreciate as we look backward in hindsight and see how these were amazingly fulfilled in Jesus. We would, we would call these shadows shadows of Christ, right? Uh, we don't see Jesus himself, but we see his shadow reflected. These shadowy figures uh, that outlined what he would be like when he shows up. You know, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament uh, show how a lot of these Old Testament figures and rituals were fulfilled in the new and better covenant that Jesus brought. Here's what Hebrews chapter 10 says, for since the law, what's that? the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So old is shadow, new is realities. And look, we don't go looking for Christ under every rock under the Old Testament and see him in places where he's not really there. 
But there are places where he's there because it's explicitly referenced in the New Testament and even other places he's there doesn't say so, but it's still pretty obvious. Uh, so we see Jesus in three different shadows. We see him in the persons, in the experiences, and in the institutions of the Old Testament. So let's start with persons. Jesus is a better Moses. I mean, Moses in the Old Testament is the guy who delivered the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the law, the Ten Commandments. He's the great lawgiver. He is the spokesman for God. He is the mediator between men and God. He was the leader of God's people. He was a type of Christ. But Jesus is a better Moses. In fact, quoting from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 18, the Apostle Peter in the New in Acts 3 says this, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. This is Christ. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So Jesus is a better Moses. Who was Moses' successor? Who took over from Moses? Joshua. Jesus is a better Joshua. In fact, that's what the name Joshua means. It means Jesus. Joshua is just the Hebrew way of saying Jesus. How? Well, think about it. Joshua led God's people across the Jordan River into the promised land. Jesus leads us into the promised land of heaven. Jesus is a better David. Jesus is called the son of David because he's born into the royal line of David. He's born in the city of David, Bethlehem. He was born to fulfill being a good king like David. So this is what the angel announces to Mary that you're going to give birth to the Son of God, Luke 1. He will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, of Israel, forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, David's kingdom ended because he died. Jesus' kingdom is forever. He's a better David. In fact, he's not only a better king, he's a better prophet. He's a better priest. He fulfills all three of the major Old Testament offices that were anointed. You know, they had the oil poured over them to anoint them to be these great uh, representatives of God. Well, that's what the word Messiah means, is the, the anointed one. He's the prophet, the priest, the king. We also see shadows of Jesus in Israel's experiences. For example, Jesus is like Noah's Ark, which was built to save people from the coming destruction of the flood. If they turned to God and they entered into the one door of the ark, they would be saved. Well, Jesus is our ark to save us from the coming destruction. Not by water again, that's why we have the promises of the rainbows, but the coming fire that will destroy. And we've got to enter into the ark through the one door, and that's Jesus, he's the door. He's the one way to God. And the New Testament says that as it was in the days of Noah, God was waiting patiently for people to repent, but only eight people were saved through the flood, through the water. And so 1 Peter 3 says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
Not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you see, when you're lowered in the waters of baptism, you're, you're sunk in the deluge of that water, you are saved through it by Christ. You're kept safe from the coming destruction. So come inside the ark before it's too late. Jesus is like Isaac and the ram. Do you know the story of God testing Abraham's faith? It says, I want you to kill your son, your beloved son, the son of promise through whom I will bless the whole world. Yes, go to Mount Moriah. And so Abraham takes Isaac and they walk up Mount Moriah. Isaac's carrying the wood for the sacrifice. Abraham lays him on the altar. He raises the knife, but the angel stops him. In Genesis chapter 12 says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thickets by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So you can see how this foreshadowed that God himself, the Father, would give his one and only son, put him to death. Jesus even walked up the hill carrying the wood you know, the cross up Mount Calvary, which, get this, is in the same place as Mount Moriah. It's the same area. And Jesus there switches roles from being Isaac to being the ram because he becomes the substitute in place of us. All of that was foreshadowing. And Hebrews 11 points out that Abraham considered that God was even able to raise him, his son Isaac, from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So he knew even if he did kill Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. And figuratively, he got his son back from the dead. But literally, Jesus, the Son of God, did come back from the dead. Jesus is like the manna. As the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They're hungry. So God supplies supernatural bread from heaven to sustain them every day. Jesus came to be the bread of life. And he sustains us every day. The Jews never ran out of bread. And Jesus says, everybody who comes to me, if they're hungry, they will never go hungry again. Eternal sustenance Jesus is like the rock in the water as they're still wandering down the wilderness they're complaining of thirst now and so God told Moses in Exodus 17 behold I'll stand before you there on the rock of Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people will drink you know what the New Testament says that rock was Christ that was a shadow of Christ because when Jesus was struck with the death blow on the cross, it released the water of life. And he said, everyone who comes to me will drink this living water and they'll never thirst again. Jesus is like the bronze serpent, still in the wilderness wandering around. Really strange story. The people just kept complaining, kept complaining. So God punished them by sending a plague of poisonous snakes. But in his mercy, he told Moses to make a pole and put a bronze serpent on it and hold it up. And everybody who looked to that serpent on the pole, 
if bitten by a snake, would be spared from the fatal poison. Now, it wasn't just a simple glance. It was a look of faith. Jesus said this in John 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So when we look with faith to Jesus who was lifted up on the cross, we're spared from certain death, from hell, from our enemy, the devil, the serpent. Finally, we get some glimpses of Jesus in the Old Testament institutions and ceremonies. We see that Jesus is the Passover lamb. You know, how God freed the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. And uh, he did that by sending plagues. And the worst, the last, the tenth plague was the angel of death. Right? And God promised that the angel of death would pass through the land and put to death all the firstborn males in every home unless you took the blood of a sacrificed lamb and smeared its blood over the doorpost of your house. That way the angel would pass over and you would be spared. And the Jews celebrated Passover every year after that, year after year after year. God declared that there could be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood because death is the penalty for our sin. But he offers mercy and that he allowed animals to be the substitute. But those animals could never really substitute for a person. They could only temporarily roll back sins until God sent the perfect person, the only acceptable, suitable, sacrificial substitute Jesus becomes our Passover lamb. In fact, he is literally crucified at the Passover feast in Jerusalem. So 1 Corinthians 5 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So he's the lamb, he's the ram, and he's the goat. And I don't just mean the greatest of all time, but he is the scapegoat. You know, there was another ceremony where once a year on the Jewish Day of Atonement, the high priest would transfer the sins of the Israelites symbolically onto a goat. And that goat would be led out far into the wilderness and let go to a place where it could never find its way back to the camp. And that's why even today, whenever somebody gets blamed for something they didn't do, they're called the scapegoat. When Jesus takes the blame for our sins, for what we've done, he then, as Psalm 103 says, takes our sins away as far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jesus is the tabernacle and the temple. You know, the tabernacle was the portable tent of meeting where people would come to meet with the Lord. And it was set up in different places for about 500 years until Solomon built the permanent temple. And that lasted for about 370 years until it was destroyed. 70 years there was no temple, but they rebuilt it, a second temple. And it lasted for about another 500 years until just the time of Jesus. Right before Jesus was born, King Herod had a third temple built. But it didn't last very long. As I said, it got destroyed in AD 70 right after Jesus because it was no longer needed. Jesus came to be our tabernacle. In fact, you know, in John chapter um, a one before he becomes Jesus he's called the word and the word became flesh and dwelt 
among us. That word for dwelt is tabernacled. God came and tabernacled among us. He set up his tent in a human body and then became the temple for us because the temple is where you go to meet with God. Jesus says in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. But he wasn't speaking about the building in Jerusalem. He was speaking about the temple of his body. We no longer need that building in Jerusalem. It's gone. It's obsolete. Because we now have God himself dwelling among us and in us. And so in a sense, we also become the temple. Because God is in us. Inside the temple, there were all these different furnishings. And each one was a fuzzy picture of Jesus. There was a table. Jesus is the table of showbread. On that table, they would set a loaf of bread as an offering. Jesus came to be the bread of life. And each Sunday, we gather symbolically around the Lord's table we call communion, and we eat the bread. Jesus said, this bread is my body given for you. Jesus is the lampstand. Inside the temple, there was a menorah. Candles lit up. Jesus was born into this dark world to bring us light, to show us the way and the truth. He said in John 8, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And whenever the good news of Jesus is proclaimed, it brings light. Jesus is like the basin. Just outside the temple, there was a big bowl of water that the priests would gather around. Before they could enter the temple, they had to get cleaned up. They had to do the ceremony of, of bathing in that basin. Jesus is our basin. As we actually go into the waters of baptism, he cleanses us through his death and resurrection. And Jesus is the curtain in the temple. You know, the most holy place, the inner sanctuary room, the holy of holies, was separated from the rest by this huge curtain that hung from the ceiling. And only the high priest could go beyond the curtain, beyond the veil, into the most holy room and there offer the sacrifice for the sins of all the people. Did you realize that at the very moment Jesus died on the cross, that temple, in, that, that curtain in the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two from top to bottom by the hand of God as it were. Why? Because it showed that we now all have direct access to God. We all can go into the most holy place to meet with God. Because Hebrews 10 says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. See, his body was torn for us on the cross so that we could enter the holy of holies in heaven and have direct access to God. And in that holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus is the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. That's the golden box that contained the Ten Commandments that represents the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Some translations call it the mercy seat. That's the lid. Others call it the atonement cover. Some call it the throne of grace because it was the blood of the sacrifices that was sprinkled on the mercy seat where God's justice met mercy and forgiveness was granted, rolled back. Jesus is our mercy seat because it was on the cross that God's justice met mercy. Jesus suffered for our sins. His blood was shed. He turned away God's wrath from our sins. 
and he satisfied his justice. There's so much more I wish I could go into about Jesus in the Old Testament because he is literally foreshadowed in every single book of the Old Testament. And yet, the Jewish people missed their Messiah that they had been waiting for for so long. Don't you miss him this Christmas. Worship Jesus as the fulfillment of all God's promises. That's what I wanted to do today, was just to kind of overwhelm you with a bunch of stuff that would show you how incredibly awesome and glorious Jesus Christ is. And, and this book, if you're new to the Bible, read about him in the New Testament. Start in the new if you're new to it, all right? Because that's where you learn about Jesus and how to think like him and how to behave like him and how to do what he did. But after you finish the new, then go back into the old because you can't fully appreciate the new without understanding the old. And what's amazing about this book is that there are 66 books in the Bible and they all form together. They fit to unfold one story, one grand master plan. And only God could write a book like that. You have every reason to put your trust, your confidence in the divine authority of this inspired book. Read it. Read it well. But remember, we're not under the old anymore. We're under the new. I mean, the old is still right and good and true. But Jesus is the better. He brought a better covenant with better promises. Because the old, as good as it was, could never save us. No amount of law-keeping, no amount of good works, no amount of, of our own efforts could ever bring forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus came to do for us what it could not, what we could not do for ourselves. So next week, we're going to see how what was concealed in the old gets fully revealed in the new. You need to be here and bring somebody with you for this Christmas message to see how in the fullness of time, Jesus fulfills everything. It's all about him. And if you're ready to say yes to Jesus, to put your trust in him today, then there are going to be people up here at the front in the next few moments that you can come talk to. They'll be up here after the service is over. You can text your name. You can email us. We'll get right back with you. But we want to help you take your next step, whatever it is. Maybe you need prayer. Maybe you're ready to be baptized into Christ today. We can do that right here and right now. Maybe you, you're ready to become a member of this church to join us here or to become active in a group, or to start serving on a team. Maybe your next step is to start having a regular encounter time with God where you're praying and reading His Word more. But a way you can respond right now is through taking communion. If you're not a follower of Christ, you've got a few moments here of silence where you can think, you can reflect, you can pray. But we're going to gather around the Lord's table right now and eat the bread. Because the bread reminds us that Jesus is the bread of life who sustains us now and forever. And we're going to drink from the fruit of the vine which reminds us of his shed blood and instituted the new covenant. The old, that whole system is gone. It's fulfilled. Jesus has been sacrificed on the altar of the cross. We have something so much better now. Every Old Testament sacrifice was just a picture, was just a prophecy, a promise, a pledge of the perfect person who would come and be the sacrifice. Jesus is the end of all sacrifices. Let's worship him in communion. Would you join me in prayer? 
Lord, you are, you are so great. You're the Lord of history. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we worship you as the fulfillment of all the promises. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the evidence of prophecies and theophanies and shadows that, that really confirm our faith and give us confidence of, of its truth. We thank you for the incarnation, for coming at Christmas and revealing yourself and, and for the reason why you came to be Savior. You're the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Prophet, the Priest, the King. Help us to keep focused on you, uh, especially as we're waiting for your second appearing, for your return. Help no one to miss out on that here, Lord. I pray that those who need to put their trust in you will do it. I pray for our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, our classmates, everybody who needs Jesus, that we will make an effort to reach out to them, to tell them, to share, to invite them to come with us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're welcome to come to the front, talk with these folks up here, or to sit where you are and share in communion.